The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 169 Alexander Comes to Jerusalem Although the narrative of the Old Testament ends with Nehemiah, the history of the Jews in the Holy Land continues. Without the infallible Word of God as our guide, we must rely on secular historical sources to determine what happens next. The following chapters are an account of what happened from the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah through to the book of Matthew. History is somewhat vague concerning the Jews for about 100 years after the time of Nehemiah. However, it is reasonable to assume that the Jews continue to follow the biblical instructions left by Ezra for a short while. Jewish traditions indicates that Ezra established a group of priestly scribes to ensure that the Bible would live on. According to the canon, God led him to determine this group, known as the Sopharim, was used to correctly replicate the Holy Scriptures, giving strict attention to ensure each copy was completely accurate. The Old Testament of the Bible we have today is evidence of their dedicated work. About 100 years after Nehemiah's second term as governor, Alexander the Great ascended to the throne of Macedonia at age 20 and took command of the massive army that his father Philip had spent a lifetime assembling and training. Alexander quickly embarked on the great military crusade that his father had spent years preparing for, the conquest of the Persian Empire the very empire that had controlled Judea since the time of Cyrus the Great. As Alexander's army marched across modern Turkey, Darius III, emperor of the Persians, prepared for a showdown. Darius commanded his army to cross the Euphrates River and meet the Greeks in the battle at Issus. Though the Persian army was far more numerous than the Greeks, Alexander's superior military strategy led to a decisive victory against Darius's forces. Soon after, Alexander marched his army southward in order to take over the island fortress of Tyre. While laying siege to Tyre, Alexander decided to send a message to Jedwa, the high priest in Jerusalem. Jedwa and all of the Jews, for that matter, had heard of Alexander's stunning victories over the Persian Empire. They now wondered what would happen to them, especially because they had been supporting the Persians. You have no doubt heard how I defeated your emperor, Darius, at Issus. Alexander wrote to Jedwa, 
Send me food for my soldiers as we lay siege to Tyre, and I promise we will be peaceful toward your people. It seemed like a reasonable offer to spare the Jews from Alexander's wrath. However, Jadwa didn't send any support to the Greek army. He had previously made an oath to Darius that only the Persians would receive the Jews' support. Jadwa could not go back on his oath, despite the threat from Alexander's powerful army. Alexander became furious when he received Jadwa's response especially since his offensive against Tyre was taking far longer than he had planned. Alexander commanded his scribe to write back to Jedwa. We might be stuck here in Tyre temporarily, but you can be sure, Jedua, that we will be victorious, and when we are, my army will make an expedition toward your city of Jerusalem. From the destructive storm I will bring on your city, I will teach men all over the world to whom they must keep their oaths. Jedwa anxiously read Alexander's message. The Jews were no match for the superior strength of Alexander's army. Jedwa's worry grew when news reached Jerusalem that Alexander had taken Tyre. If his army can take Tyre, Jedwa thought, Jerusalem's defensive wall would be nothing for his siege weapons. The high priest knew that Jerusalem could be saved only by God's powerful intervention. And so Jedwa sent out a message to all the people, warning them of the dire situation the city now faced. He compelled his countrymen to beseech God in prayer for their protection. He also encouraged the people to come and offer sacrifices to God at the temple. In response to their prayers, God showed Jedwa in a dream what he should do to protect the city. God's direction didn't involve a brilliant military strategy, nor did it require reinforcing Jerusalem's city wall. Instead of closing the city gates to Alexander's army, Jedwa was to open them. Instead of putting the Jewish army in battle formation as Alexander approached the city, he was to send the priests, dressed in their finest apparel, out of the city. The city would be beautified as if preparing for a massive feast. All the people were to be dressed in their cleanest white garments, and the musicians would be prepared to perform. If they did all this, Jerusalem would be spared. Arising from his dream, Jadwa set out to implement God's instructions for the city's defense. The city was beautified, and the people were informed to welcome the Greek king. Then they waited. In the days before Alexander's army arrived, many of the people became uneasy, doubting whether this was really the best course of action. Some wanted to flee Jerusalem. Others wondered whether it would be better to put up a fight. In the end, however, all continued to follow Jedwa's instructions. Finally, after a nervous week of waiting, Alexander's army was spotted on the horizon approaching from the west. Jedwa commanded the city gates to be opened, and he organized the white-garbed priests and musicians into a stunning procession. 
Jedwa, dressed in his purple and scarlet attire, stood out in front. As Alexander's army neared, the column of people exited the city to the sound of music, which the Jews had become famous for. Alexander's soldiers were shocked to see the unarmed Jews open the gates and come out to meet them. They hadn't seen anything like it in all their previous battles. However, instead of being moved by compassion by the approaching unarmed mass, many of Alexander's officers were ready to charge through the people and plunder the city. Surprisingly, it was Alexander who held them back. Eventually, procession met Alexander. Instead of reaching for his sword to lop off the head of the Jewish high priest, Alexander raised his hand in an honorific salute to Jedwa. The soldiers were shocked by what they saw. They were expecting Alexander to exact revenge upon the Jews for not helping them in their war against Tyre. What are you doing? Asked Pomenio, one of Alexander's officers, as the Jews continue to play their music and surround the king. How is it that while all people of the earth have adored you, that you adore the high priest by saluting to him? A smiling Alexander turned to Parmenio and replied, I did not adore him by my salute, but the God who has honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very situation, when I was at Dios in Macedonia. When I was thinking how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, this man exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea there, for that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. And now it is, having seen no one else yet in this exact situation, and now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct. I am convinced that I shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. So, instead of taking to arms, Alexander accepted Jedwa's invitation to come into the city peacefully. Jerusalem's inhabitants lined the streets in great fanfare, welcoming the Greek king in what was surely one of the most surprising turns of events in history. Soon thereafter, Alexander received a tour of the precinct. However, as a Gentile, he was not allowed to approach the main temple structure. While observing the work of the priests upon the altar, the high priest approached Alexander with a scroll in his hand. I have something to show you, Jedwa told the young monarch. This is one of our sacred books recorded by the prophet Daniel while he was in Babylon. If I may, please allow me to read you a portion of this prophecy recorded 200 years ago. I think it will interest you. Alexander was indeed interested and agreed to hear the reading. This is what Daniel wrote, started Jedwa. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a large protruding horn between his eyes. As Daniel wrote later, this male goat is your kingdom of Grecia. And this horn represents its mighty leader, you, Alexander. 
And what does it say I am to do? Ask Alexander skeptically. Well, Daniel continued to write, and he, that's you, came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. This ram is the Persian Empire. Am I to be successful in my fight against the Persians? Ask Alexander, his interest growing. I'll read on. Jedwa responded. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him. There was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Wow, I like this prophecy. The Greek king exclaimed to Jedwa, My arch enemies will fall beneath my feet, just as I have planned. With that, Jedwa closed the scroll, choosing not to continue reading the part where Daniel had prophesied that in a few years, Alexander's life would be cut short. Alexander was jubilant and astounded by the prophecy. He had heard predictions of his success from his own sages, but didn't give them much credence, given they were on his side of the war. But to hear from a foreigner's own writings that he was to be successful, and coupled with the fulfillment of his dream, Alexander believed Jedua. What can I give you for your acts of kindness toward me? Alexander asked the high priest. All we ask is that you allow us to continue in our way of life and not have to give up our traditions. Jedwa quickly responded. You will have this and more. Alexander said. Anywhere I find your people, not just here in Judea, I will not compel them to follow after our ways. Also, if any want to join my army, they will be able to retain their laws while they fight. Jedwa graciously accepted the offer. The next day, Alexander decided it was time to depart Jerusalem with his army. He traveled on to Egypt and then across to Persia, where he would begin to fulfill all that he had been told while in Jerusalem. In 301 BC, 20 years after the death of Alexander the Great, four leaders rose to the fore and divided Alexander's kingdom among themselves. This fourfold division fulfilled another of God's prophecies through Daniel. Of those four, Ptolemy, based out of Egypt, and Seleucus, with his capital in Antioch of Syria, fought for control of Judea. For the first century, the land of Judea was under the leadership of the Ptolemaic kingdom. Each year, the high priest was responsible to the Egyptian government to collect taxes from the people. But given that Judea was located in between these two powers, constant infighting and wars between them affected the Jews. Five wars were fought between these kingdoms, north and south of Jerusalem, till eventually the northern Seleucid kingdom captured the land of Judea from the Ptolemaic kingdom. Even though this kingdom's capital was once in Syria, the culture it espoused was Greek, following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great. One of Syria's key rulers was Antiochus the Great. He knew that to unify the diverse people he ruled, 
he would have to instill one single belief system. Being a Greek by birth, he chose to push the Greek culture, known as Hellenism. To accomplish this task, Antiochus created Hellenistic cities throughout the kingdom that would receive many perks of trade, citizenry, and tax breaks. Gradually, the ruling class throughout the empire belonged to these Hellenistic cities in order to grow their financial wealth. Jerusalem, by the Jews' own request, was turned into a full-fledged Greek city, complete with a gymnasium where the Greek language and arts were taught. Politically, however, Antiochus the Great overestimated his army's ability as he ordered it westward to take over Greece and Macedonia. There he met with the Roman Republic in a fierce battle. He lost and was ordered to pay a massive annual tribute to Rome and to send representatives from the Seleucid family to Rome as hostages. Among those hostages was the second son of the king, young Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Although he was not allowed to leave Rome, young Antiochus Epiphanes was treated to the highest class of upbringing according to Roman standards. He was well-educated in the most acclaimed schools, rubbing shoulders with the greatest intellectuals of the period. He quickly befriended many of the young Roman aristocracy. Members of the Roman government hoped that if they treated Antiochus well, he would eventually ensure an alliance between the Seleucid Kingdom and Rome. However, much of the well-ordered education was wasted on Antiochus. Although he had a high intellect, he didn't have the manners or the character to use it toward a constructive purpose. He was often seen playing practical jokes with some of his more juvenile friends around Rome. In his later teen years, news reached Rome that Antiochus' father had died and his brother Seleucus Philopata had assumed the crown in Antioch. Antiochus Epiphanes was released when the new crown prince, Philopata's young son, replaced him as Rome's hostage. After almost a decade of being held in Rome, Antiochus began his journey back toward his homeland. However, on the way, he stopped in Athens and was employed as assistant to the city's chief magistrate. While there, he was further educated in Roman law and became close <laughs> friends with some of the younger, more conniving members of the Athenian society. After a few years in Athens, Antiochus received news of his brother's murder at the hands of one of Philopater's treasurers. Immediately, Antiochus thought, this is my time to act. The Seleucid throne should have rightfully passed on to Philopater's young son, but Antiochus quickly traveled to Syria to take the throne for himself. Aided by some of the powerful people he had befriended while in Athens, Antiochus entered Antioch secretly and then revealed himself at a public gathering. Using all his public speaking abilities gained while in Rome and Athens, Antiochus appealed to the hearts of the people 
appearing full of kindness and compassion. The people of Antioch accepted his rule, even though they knew it was not his right. Antiochus loved the power that came with his position, but he hated all the formalities. Soon after coming into power, he felt the constraints that his position put on his behavior. To escape the formality of royal life, he would often slip over the palace walls, disguised as a commoner. Moving through the streets, the king would revel with the local townsfolk, often getting drunk on wine. One of his favorite pastimes was visiting the local bathhouses. On one occasion, while bathing at a public bar, one of Antiochus' servants accompanied him, carrying a large clay vessel of very expensive oils. Most of the ordinary folk were shocked when they saw their king start to undress for the bath and join the others. One local man yelled out to the king, You kings are lucky people to use such things that smell so good. Antiochus looked at the man but didn't say a word. He then proceeded to enter the bath with his servant, preparing to smother him with the oils. Before he left the bath, Antiochus took note of the man who had yelled out. The next day, Antiochus returned to the same public bathhouse, again accompanied by a large vessel of precious myrrh. However, this time, Antiochus had a different use in mind for the oil. He began to bathe while his servant continued to hold on to the vat of oil. When the local man from the previous day appeared, Antiochus yelled out, Now! Immediately, the servant came up behind the man and broke the vessel of oil over his head. The man dropped to the ground unconscious by the blow. Silence prevailed for a few seconds as the astonished public tried to understand what had taken place. As the shock wore off, the large puddle of ointment oozing over the floor caught the lustful eyes of the crowd. Men quickly exited the pool, rushing over the polished floor to wallow in the oil. The first to arrive at the slimy surface slipped across the floor slick with oil. Others slid across the slippery surface, joining the men on the floor. Before long, the scene was chaotic as the laughing people covered themselves in the precious oil. Not to be left out, Antiochus soon joined the festivity, reveling with the commoners. This was just another day in the strange kingship of Antiochus Epiphanes. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.